Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and today we're going to be doing a special show focused on the dramatic events that have been unfolding over the past 48 to 72 hours, really from the time of Thursday or Friday in over the weekend in Guangzhou, China, southern China. Now, Guangzhou is home to the largest African diaspora population, not only in China, but also all of Asia. And what's been happening there is just absolutely stunning. So it began really Thursday night and into Friday, when, and then really picked up pace into Saturday, when Chinese authorities, mixed with Chinese landlords, mixed with who knows what, started in a, a program, I don't know if it was organized or if it just kind of happened, of evicting African migrants, African expatriates from their homes and hotels. And then what ended up happening is they put them onto the street and they said, you just can't be here. And, and we started seeing these very dramatic pictures coming out onto social media of young, mostly African men sleeping on the street, being pushed away from their residences and being told, you just can't be here. You have to go. Now, even people who have proper paperwork, proper, all everything was lined up, all their visas were lined up, everything was perfect, they were not in violation of anything. Uh, there is ample video of them being told they have to leave and go right now. That then precipitated one of the most dramatic things in 10 years of me covering this story that I have ever seen. We started to see coming out of Africa, from Lagos to Kampala to Nairobi, African leaders calling in Chinese ambassadors, issuing statements, and dressing down Chinese ambassadors on video. And it was stunning. I mean, just from diplomatic protocol, it was really just, again, just takes your breath away with what the speed with which all this has been happening. And then finally bring, let's fast forward to Sunday. We're in a situation where the Chinese now, who were caught flat-footed in terms of the response from uh, in the media, now are starting to respond. And let me just read a little bit of a statement that came out of the Global Times newspaper. Now, Global Times is one of the newspapers that is uh, probably a little bit more uh, aggressive, more kind of like, you know, I'm not, it's hard to describe what a comparison it is, but it is definitely more hawkish on it. And they, they started kind of covering it. And the, they're going back to a very well-established playbook that the Chinese have used. Number one, it is to deny that this thing is happening. And so Global Times has referred to this as rumors and allegations. So they're not confirming that it's happening. Uh, then there was a press conference on Sunday by Guangzhou Mayor Wen Guohui, who reaffirmed that no discrimination is tolerated in Guangzhou. This is a very difficult line to follow for the Chinese simply because of the sheer quantity of videos, pictures, and accounts that are now on social media which really clearly show uh, instances of discrimination. In fact, there were some videos that were showing law enforcement uh, putting their hands on young African men. There were instances where we saw on video people confiscating passports. So the idea of no discrimination is going to be a very difficult position for the Chinese to maintain. And finally, the last point in the Global Times uh, article and Global Times, of course, trying to channel a little bit of the official government represent uh, kind of point of view here. Uh, blaming Western media. So there are reports that coming out from Agence France Presse, Reuters, and CNN, who they call alleging that Africans are being badly treated. Interestingly enough, they did not mention any of the African reporting on this, which has been extensive. 
So they're putting it all on Western media. So those are the three kind of points, and that's a very shorthand of where we are today. What I wanted to do, just very quickly, over the next week or so, we're going to start bringing in different voices into this discussion to try and understand the magnitude and the implications for what's happening here. Uh, I, for one, believe that this is uh, a rupture in the relationship, not a break, but it is a very serious moment. And we're going to get some perspectives on this. And the first person that I wanted to call is Roberto Castillo, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Cultural Studies at Lingan University. For followers of our show, he's been on many times. Uh, He is one of the world's foremost experts on the African diaspora in China. He's written extensively about race and race relations in China involving Africans, and uh, also the, the, the force behind the AfricansInChina.net website, which is absolutely an invaluable resource for anybody who is interested in this. And he joins us on the line from Hong Kong. A very good afternoon to you, Roberto. Hi, how are you? It's really a pleasure to be here again in these uh, complex and difficult times. These are complex and difficult times. Let's just start, you know, getting your, we're trying to digest what's been going on and the magnitude of what's been going on. Um, You called this a PR disaster for China. Talk to us a little bit about the reactions that you're having watching the events as they've been unfolding over the past few days. I think that the first thing I want to say is that um, any comment that I make here right now has to be qualified by the fact that we're living through extraordinary times, times of uncertainty, anxiety, and fear, and that these elements leave very little room for rational decisions to be made, right? And that a lot of people are caught up in this complex, crazy nonsense, right? Now, I I need to qualify what I'm about to say again, because I think it's very important. I, I, I'm not intending right now to explain or spin or, you know, uh, what you call this, like mansplaining or any of these kinds of things, right? I just want to help a little bit in providing context to what we have seen going on over the last 72 hours and in many of the videos that you're talking about. So we can talk about discrimination, we can talk about racism, you can, we can talk about humiliation. I think that everyone who's listening to this, uh, to this podcast, this show, will have an opinion on this, right? Now, um, I think that one of the reasons why I uh, spoke to CNN and I said that this was a PR uh, disaster of a, or a PR mess uh, is pretty much based on the fact that I think that uh, the whole coronavirus crisis, COVID-19 crisis, is going to pose a huge challenge to uh, a huge challenge for China to sort of recover the space that it had gained over the last 10 or 15 years in terms of soft power, in terms of uh, relationships in different parts of the world and specifically in, in the African continent. But more so after what we've seen in the last three or four days, I think that those images, as as you were correctly pointing out, I think that those images are going to be very difficult to be forgotten, very difficult to be erased, especially because for a lot of people, and I've been in touch over the last couple of days with people in Kenya, in Tanzania, I've been talking to people that were were in China before, and I've been asking them how they feel about this. And and one of the the feelings that they really harbor and one of the feelings that is really painful for them to talk about is that over the last two or three months, they felt that many African countries and many African societies and even many African communities in China were really uh, helpful and in solidarity with the Chinese um, 
uh, with Chinese people, with, with China. And in many ways now they feel betrayed. They feel that uh, what China has been doing to them or what, what some Chinese people, to qualify this in a, in, a, in a more nuanced way, what some Chinese people and what some Chinese authorities have been doing to some Africans in China is something that they've been taking to heart in a really bad way. And I think it's going to stay there for a long time. So I think that all, all in all, just to answer your question, to your question briefly, I think that all in all, this is going to have a huge impact, not only the coronavirus crisis, but this the developments of the last 72 hours is going to have a huge impact on on the whole one belt, one road. China is a new leader. China will change the world kind of narrative that China usually puts forward in its relationship with African countries. Well, that just shows you how the stakes are so high to understand what's going on here. Let's take this first from the Chinese perspective and then move over to the African reaction later. Uh, like you, I've been in touch with a number of different Chinese stakeholders, professors, journalists, uh, scholars over the past 72 hours trying to understand the response. And here's what I'm hearing, and I'd like to hear what you think as well. Number one, one of the first initial responses were was these people violated the health restrictions, and therefore they are not special from anybody else. Everybody who violates the health codes must be dealt with. That was one of the lines that came out with people were not necessarily aware uh, of the videos and everything. And I think this is a very important point here. Whereas we on the outside of China, outside the Great Firewall, can access Twitter and Facebook and are following all of the videos that are being posted up, domestically inside China, uh, you can't see it unless you have a firewall, uh, a VPN. And most people don't use the VPN, even most government officials. So they're not, we're not necessarily approaching this issue from the same kind of vantage point. And then people said was, well, this was, you know, these are local authorities in Guangzhou. It doesn't necessarily represent all of China. And, 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 and there was this kind of deflection a little bit that we're overstating it. And it is also, uh, you know, it's being overdone by the West to harm China. And this was a last point that came out, which was, if this happened in any other country, and I think the assumption there is if this happened in the United States or Europe, uh, people and the press and CNN would not be making the same fuss. Um, talk to us a little bit about what you understand the Chinese reaction to be. And, and also, just very quickly, I tried valiantly over the weekend to get Chinese people to talk to me on for the show, and everybody uh, said no. So uh, talk to us a little bit about the Chinese kind of worldview on this kind of issue. Well, um, first of all, I think it would be, I mean, I've seen many videos, right? And I think it would be very difficult for us to actually ascertain the magnitude or the size of these uh, these developments over the last um, three or four days. I mean, I, I agree with you. I've heard that there's many cases in, in Guangzhou, specifically in one area of the city that has a history of being a very tense area between African communities and um, and uh, the the local authorities. Uh, but I think that it would be very difficult for us to actually know what's the, I mean, to what extent is this really happening in, as you were saying, throughout uh, Guangzhou, but also uh, throughout the country. I've heard that there's been other, a couple of other cases in Beijing, in Shanghai, but I'm not so much uh, at this point, I'm not clear on what uh, what is the size of the situation. I think this is a developing uh, situation, so we don't know yet. But uh, I think that in relation to what you're asking in the sense of um, um, how the Chinese government or the Chinese authorities are dealing with 
uh, this uh, with this particular case in in Guangzhou, I think it talks about uh, a wider problem that has been brewing or that has been going on in Guangzhou specifically, but also in Quan in the Guangdong region for quite a long time. And by this, I mean that for certain years, maybe ten or fifteen years, a lot of people, a lot of foreigners, specifically coming from Africa and also the Middle East, have found themselves in very complex situations in the sense that they have uh, they sometimes are forced to overstay their visas to uh, remain in China and to try to do the the business that they want to do right so many of these individuals live in very uh, precarious conditions in the sense that sometimes they don't have legal documents sometimes they don't have like a very clear identity right so uh, I think that from the Chinese perspective at this point to deal with individuals that cannot be easily tracked or that cannot be is or that their their identities cannot be easily scrutinized poses a high risk that is compounded by the fear and anxiety that I was talking about earlier right so okay I, I am not trying to spin or trying to explain this away. Uh, I think that this is highly discriminatory and it is associated with many racist views that people in China have about uh, black people in general. But if we actually look at the context and we want to sort of focus on what is going on in China with this crisis, the fact that many of these individuals, for instance, do not have, uh, uh, and you know, here I want to be specific. Most of the videos that we have seen over the last 72 hours, as you were saying, most of those videos have been recorded in two or three areas of Guangzhou, very specific areas. And most of the people that we've seen in these videos are Nigerians. Now, this is not to say that this thing is not happening to other people in other communities, but the videos that we've seen, most of them are recorded specifically by Igbo Nigerians, actually. But um, so all I'm saying here is that many there's a history of Nigerians in certain parts of Guangzhou that have remained undocumented in the country, right? And si since some of these individuals do not have a way to prove or, uh, uh, or um, their identity they don't have a way to check their identities. So they pose a high risk, as I was telling you earlier, especially in the sense that if you don't know, if you do not have a passport or a, or a visa or, you know, a clear identity nowadays in China, you're not going to be able to have one of these apps that clears, that gives, you, that gives you different colors, red, yellow, green. So to see that you're clear from the virus or that you are a person that is in risk or not. Right. So I'm just trying to think about this complex situation, but also about what is the rationality behind it for the people, the authorities that are uh, sort of creating this tense uh, situation in Guangzhou. One other thing that is quite that is associated, sorry, that is associated to this uh, um, to this topic here is the fact that when 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 we think about uh, you know the discourses that you hear in international media and how you hear, for instance, China is cracking down on Africans in Guangzhou or China is is uh, persecuting Africans in the streets of Guangzhou or China is pushing individuals outside, out of their houses and out of their hotels. I think that sometimes this China stands for so many different things that 
are not clearly specified in the media reports that we hear, right? Now, here I'm talking about governance in China, right? And it is clear that uh, there is not one single directive, there's not one single policy, there's not one single memorandum for this to happen. It is more kind of a hype, uh, uh, sorry, a... Uh, uh, an overreaction by local authorities, especially after uh, Xi Jinping on Wednesday, last Wednesday, uh, he said that uh, local authorities and, mun and municipal governments needed to be very careful with foreigners because the second wave of cases could come from foreigners, right? So I think that that, that was one of the triggers. Now, uh, a lot of people may know better than me, but in the case of China, in many ways, sometimes these, these directives, so-called directives, trickle down in very unspecified ways and in ways that are really difficult to track. And then different authorities in different cities decide to do different things, right? So from what I've seen from these videos, it, it is a complete mess. Sometimes you get like community managers from buildings uh, trying to, um, you know, uh, take the, the, the black or African people, because there's also African-Americans that have been uh, forced out of their places. Sometimes it's the police, sometimes it's the landlords. Some landlords manage to talk to some individuals and then they can stay for longer. So there's not one single policy. That's what I'm trying to say, right? But still, I think that the main point that I want to make here is that uh, the fact that uh, there's a lot of individuals without a legal abode in, in China, that makes their identities to be more uh, difficult to be scrutinized and that really heightens the paranoia and the fear that local authorities and and, and people would have a, uh, would have around them or about them and that's a very important point that you make and a lot of people i think on the outside who are not familiar with the chinese governance system think again china uh, immigration issues uh, there is no immigration department like there is in the united states immigration's customs enforcement immigration is handled at the local level so for example as a foreigner when you come to a city in china you have to go to your local police office to register uh, and then they manage your presence in the country rather than a national or federal immigration authority like we have in the West. So uh, that is a confusing, a confusing point for a lot of people that who think mistakenly that this is coming from Beijing. And it is actually being enacted by local authorities at the either the city or the provincial level or even sometimes at the district level within a big city like Guangzhou. Uh, but I want to go back a little bit. Again, let's lay the context for what's happened over the past 72 hours, because it just didn't come out of out of nowhere. And there were a couple events that have been leading up in the previous two or three weeks uh, that indicate tensions were, were, were heightening and their problems may come. Number one was the fact that uh, I don't remember exactly when it was, but a few weeks ago, uh, the Chinese government posted online and seeking comment on its new permanent residency law. And in that was a spate, I mean, just an amazing amount of anti-black racist comments that came from Chinese netizens. Uh, and that started to flare up back in Africa as well. And that was kind of, that took everybody off guard a little bit. But really, it started to pick up last, uh, no, March 10th, uh, no, I'm sorry, April 10th, no, March 10th, forgive me, I'm getting my dates wrong here, but a 47-year-old Nigerian man who, was, who had been tested positive for COVID ID, was in a Guangzhou hospital. He tried to escape, 
and he bit a nurse, assaulted a nurse, and this was covered widely in Chinese media. And it really provoked a lot of concern and a lot of fear. He was arrested by the authorities, and he will be prosecuted upon his release from uh, from the hospital. Then a few days later, uh, there was a group of Nigerians, I think the number is five, who were in a restaurant in Guangzhou and tested positive for COVID ID. These events leading up to it provoked a lot of fear in the minds of people in Guangzhou that Africans were in fact bringing uh, COVID ID into Guangzhou, which up until now, Guangzhou had not been affected in the same way that, say, Wuhan or other Chinese cities had been. They only had a few hundred cases, if I remember correctly. So all of a sudden, the fear that COVID was being brought into the community from Africans led to this reaction. You followed those instances. What do you think, what role did they play in provoking the reaction that started to happen about 72 hours ago? I think that the most important thing in relation to the African population, and you know, I mean, here, this is an overgeneralization, right? The African population of Congo is very diverse. But one of the fears uh, that local authorities have been having for a while, and they had it back in 2014 with the, um, the possible outbreak of Ebola, I mean, they were fearing that the Ebola was going to come uh, to Guangzhou. I think one of the fears that they've been having is that they are very well aware that this population is a very uh, difficult to track population, a very uh, a population that is not uh, that is is very unstable. Uh, a lot of individuals decide to overstay and remain in the country, so it is not as uh, different populations that they could have in China. I'm talking about ethnic minorities or, or different types of uh, local populations or even other other foreign communities that have a lower incidence of overstaying in the country. So I think that the main fear was that uh, rather than Africans bringing this from, from Africa, because that's not very clear, the, the fear is that if there is an outbreak in the African community, then how are you going to track individuals that are pretty much untrackable and that for the last 10 years or 15 years have been making themselves untrackable? And I'm not talking about, again, the whole African community in Guangzhou, right? I'm talking about that there's a, that there's a big number of spe specifically Nigerians in the city that have been sort of uh, trying to circumvent uh, the the entry and exit laws for a long time. And, and if you have these individuals that have been sort of making themselves invisible, roaming around in the city with the specific conditions of this uh, uh, virus in the sense of in the sense that even asymptomatic people are sharing it, uh, then I think that the, the, the fear is huge in the sense that the local authorities have known for a while that this population is not under full control. And if there's something that freaks out uh, local authorities uh, from the municipal to the national level is not to be able to control something, right? I think that China is a control freak state, right? So in this specific situation, an unprecedented situation that we've never seen before, I think that the fear and the anxieties uh, sort of make the whole reaction against uh, this community bigger. Right now, it must be said that, again, most of the videos that we've seen are specifically I mean, there are a couple of videos in which in which police or landlords and community managers ca have come to the um, 
to the places of abode or apartments of people, even even African men that have been married, uh, that are married with Chinese women. But most of the other videos that we saw are from San Yuan Li and from Xiao Bei Lu, uh, specifically around hotels. And it is well known for a long time that in many hotels of those two areas, a lot of youngsters that decide to overstay their visas stay or share rooms. Sometimes five, six people staying in the same room, uh, friends and, and, and sometimes relatives or business partners sharing uh, spaces. And they sometimes are not even documented by the hotels that they're staying in. Right. So this complex situation, I think, is what led to um, uh, this this massive reaction uh, that you've been having or that you've been seeing in these videos that you've seen. So if the way that they handled it uh, is not optimal, then what do you think they should have done? How could they have done this better in your view? Well, I think, I mean, I, I think that, that it would be very difficult to deal with um, any population management or population control right now in the world, uh, but specifically... Uh, to deal with a foreign uh, migrant, highly mobile, difficult to track population poses a great challenge to any country trying to uh, contain or to mitigate uh, this disease. And uh, I mean, this just I was just reminded a minute ago of uh, what is going on in the United States. And uh, I am not the kind of person that always brings the U.S. in comparison with China. But in this particular case, when uh, I was reading not long ago about the case of so many immigrants that are in immigrant detention centers in the United States and that some people are asking the government to release them so they don't get, uh, you know, um, they don't get sick. Uh, and the government says that they're not going to release them, and there's all this debate about that, right? So I think the, the, I think the, the, the challenge or the issue there is similar in the sense that uh, certain governments are, are sort of worried about how to deal or control populations in this day and age. I mean, in the case of China, to be honest, um, I think that local authorities for a long time have known about the existence of a massive number of uh, West African overstayers in Guangzhou. And, you know, we have reported and we have scholarly debated this for a while and like, uh, but it's always been happening. So they've never really cracked down on it fully. So this means that they have been allowing it to happen. Uh, but I think that at this point they are having some regrets because uh, they're feeling the pressure uh, from the national authorities in the sense that if uh, there is an outbreak amongst a, a an uncontrollable population of younger of young West Africans that are difficult to track, and they start, you know, creating a new complex situation in in like a new Wuhan, if you want, in in Guangzhou. Then uh, I think the authorities are really fearful that the the national government is going to come and crack down on the authorities which is something that uh, the national government in China traditionally does with authorities that fail to uh, enforce the law, right, in certain critical situations. So if this was a population of mostly Nigerians uh, and predominantly Igbo Nigerians, then why did the response, in your view, generate such an emotional reaction across Africa and around the world among the diaspora? And this is not the first time that we've seen crackdowns in Guangzhou against the African community. It's something that's been building up over, say, five or six years from now. 
This time, though... Sorry, I, I wouldn't like to characterize this as something that is only happening to uh, Nigerian Igbos. I think that there is enough evidence and videos and, and reports from many, you know, Ugandan, Kenyan, Tanzanian students in different universities that they've been harassed. Many of them have been allowed to remain on campus, but in some universities, they've been pushed out of campus too, and they've been told to go away. So uh, I wouldn't like to characterize this as something that is just happening to Nigerian Igbos. Uh, what I was saying is that the, the videos that we've seen are mostly about... Uh, about Nigerian Igbos, but I've read reports of this happening uh, in Guangzhou, in Shenzhen, uh, and also in other cities, even in Shanghai and Beijing, to people from other communities. Now, um, I think that maybe two or three days ago, there was a gathering of the uh, uh, the presidents of the different African communities in Guangzhou with local authorities, and not only the presidents of these informal local communities, but also uh, some of the consular representatives, uh, some of the embassy people in in those places, uh, with uh, with uh, local community with local authorities, and they were uh, telling the local authorities that many citizens from different countries had been exposed to this type of treatment. Right, so. Um, yeah, so it's not only about Nigerian Igbos, and I think that the, that why the reaction has been so strong in uh, in China, but also in different parts of the world, is because of uh, what I said earlier, in the sense that uh, Africa had been, you know, standing behind China throughout the last two months, and uh, and honestly, the images that we've seen are shocking, and uh, are reminiscent of the worst uh, of the worst of uh, racism that we've seen in other parts of the world throughout history, right? I think the reaction from a lot of people on the African side of the equation, and we'll kind of move now away from China to look at the reaction online and in Africa, was the fact that uh, Chinese illegal immigration across Africa has been a, a persistent issue. Although it's gone down over the past few years, it still remains that it, African authorities have not cracked down on Chinese immigration, uh, illegal immigration that much, and there's been some very loose standards. And so this idea that... In Africa, people uh, tolerate the presence of Chinese migrants who also like what you were saying are not tracked and maybe have overstayed their papers or in a gray area. And yet here we have the inconsistency or the perception of inconsistency that this is happening to Africans as well. Um, talk to us a little bit about the perceptions as you read it from the discussions you have and the research that you've done over the years in terms of this sense that one side is not treating the other fairly. Yeah, well, I think that this has been, um, you know, on for, for a long time in the sense that uh, many Africans that have been uh, in China for a while know that uh, the way they are treated in China uh, is not exactly the way Chinese people are treated throughout the African continent, right? So many of them have, um, have criticized the existence or the emergence of a a hierarchy, right? As some people call it a, a racial hierarchy amongst Chinese and uh, and uh, and Africans. Uh, I think that uh, one of the most vocal, one of the most vocal voices, one of the most vocal voices uh, in terms of um, uh, criticizing this has been the voice of uh, Ghanaian blogger uh, Wodemaya who throughout many of his videos, his, one, of the, one of the points that he's always been trying to put forward is the fact that many of the things that Chinese do or are able to do 
uh, or can do in 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 Africa, uh, Africans would never be able to do in China, right? And he has like a host of examples, right? From from the recordings of of, of children singing and being sold in Taobao to many other examples that he has in there, things that Africans would never be able to do when they come to China. So I think that there's a long history of this kind of. Uh, uh, let's call it asymmetric uh, relationship and asymmetric treatment. Uh, and this this has a long history, right? A long history in terms of uh, foreign presence, racial prejudice in China, but also foreign presence, colonialism and racial prejudice in, in the African context, right? If Xi Jinping called you up tomorrow, unlikely as it may be, but let's say he did, and he said, Roberto, tell me, how do I get out of this? How do I fix this? What would you say to President Xi Jinping? Well, <laughs> um, now, now I'm going to be giving <laughs> advice to Xi Jinping. That's a good, you put me in a really good position here. Um, I think that I would ask them to really profusely apologize and very clearly uh, state that uh, China does not really have control of uh, all the levels of authority that they have throughout the country, and uh, and that in many ways uh, these types of treatment sometimes escape their hands. I'm sure that if they, I, I mean, I'm sure this is not a national directive. I'm sure this is not. There's no like secret racist campaign policy against uh, specifically targeting blacks in in China. Uh, but I know it looks like that to many, uh, to many Westerners, to many people outside uh, China, especially to many people that are not acquainted with the relationship that China and Africa have. But I think that um, uh, I think that pretty much uh, right now, I mean, in general, I think that uh, governance in China is very complex and it cannot be characterized as Xi Jinping wanting to do something and then everybody does it. Uh, but I think that in this particular context in which we're living through um, fear, anxiety and uncertainty uh, have triggered uh, like hyped and over uh, the top reactions. And this is what we're seeing. So my recommendation to them would be uh, apologize, 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 uh, say that you're not fully in control, but that you will get in control and, uh, you know, uh, in a very Chinese style, go and make some CGTN videos and show how Africans have been uh, welcomed back to hotels and some kind of ridiculous thing like that. Well, <laughs> your mouth to God's ear, because I, I can't I was trying to think back over the years that I've been studying China, which is now going on 30 uh, when they've ever apologized like that and done a kind of a kuto, and I I haven't seen it, and it's it's kind of like asking the Americans to apologize. It's just not something we do very well, you know. Big powers don't apologize, so I'm. Um, I see your point, and that's actually what I've been saying as well. I gave my recommendations to to to, to Xi Jinping, and it was this idea that, uh, you know, China's described its relationship with Africa in the context of brothers. It has described it also as all-weather friends. These are the words that Chinese rhetoric has been used to, to kind of frame the China-Africa relationship in this idea that brothers and all-weather friends don't treat each other this way. And I suggested that said in the haste of trying to, to bring this, this awful disease under control and this virus under control, some of our, you know, our folks down in Guangzhou got carried away. We apologize, but we're, we're fixing it. 
there's one other thing that that they need to try and avoid, and it, and this is picking up momentum, is that the Nigerians are talking about an evacuation from China, of sending a plane to Guangzhou. And I think the optics of that are going to be a disaster on so many different levels, in part because for the past three months, the Chinese embassies across Africa have been reassuring parents that their kids are safe in China. And the idea that a, uh, you know, a Nigerian charter jet is going to land at Baiyun International Airport in Guangzhou with the mission, and that's going to be covered by Nigerian media. And again, here's the thing that maybe Chinese stakeholders don't always understand. Nigeria has a very big voice because of its presence in Africa, because of Nollywood, the, the, the population size. So whatever, the, whatever happens in Nigeria gets amplified because of its, of its disproportionate size on, uh, on social media. And so this idea, this vision of evacuating people from China is a terrible optics. <laughs> and if I was in the Chinese foreign ministry, I would be trying to do everything in my power to make sure that that plane never lands uh, because that sends a terrible message. But again, I'm not so sure that they'll listen to what you and I have to say. I, I won't ask you how this is going to play out because it's changing so fast and we just don't know. So what I'd like to do is maybe check in with you in a couple of weeks. Uh, one of the things we're going to do on the podcast, everybody, is we're going to be talking to a lot of different voices from Africa, from China, from all around the world to talk about the implications of this. Roberto was is the great best person we could start out our conversation with. Uh, Roberta, you tweet uh, regularly on these things and you're providing insights. Where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, my Twitter handle is Castillo Rocas, which is C-A-S-T-I-L-L-O-R-O-C-A-S. Uh, and uh, they can find me there. And I, I do make a lot of, uh, especially over the last couple of months, I've been, I've been tweeting a lot about the whole crisis, but uh, obviously I do a lot of um, China-Africa related um related tweeting. Fantastic. And also you have AfricansInChina.net, which is a resource that goes back years on uh, race relations, the diaspora, lots of different uh, great information that's there. So I recommend everybody to check that out. So, uh, well, that'll do it for this edition of the show. I'll be back again multiple times throughout the week to bring up, uh, to talk about this issue in more detail. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.